0: What I tell people is, if you assume you have the disease, if you assume that you have the risk, and we all have it to some extent, right, and live as though you have the risk, and that means live a certain type of lifestyle, you will significantly reduce your risk. There is your cure right there. Ten years ago, we actually said 90% of Alzheimer's can be prevented. That was so controversial that even BBC uh, decided not to. Well, they, they interviewed us, the segment. but yeah, segment was canceled <laughs> and another one. But, so. Many studies showed 60% of Alzheimer's can be prevented through lifestyle. But we say that if you live the optimal health, which almost no population has done, you can reduce it by 90%. Irrespective, even 60% is profound. That's We're talking
1: about the most expensive disease in the world. That's right. That's Drs. Dean and Asia Sherzai. And this is episode 117 of The Proof Podcast. here we are for episode 117 with neurologists, Drs. Dean and Aisha Sherzai talking all things omega-3s. What are they? What foods are they in? Should we supplement them for brain health, etc.? Before we get into it, I have a few things to share with you. Firstly, and most importantly, I hope you are well, feeling positive about life, happy, healthy. And if not, I hope you have the support that you need to turn things around. Secondly, for new listeners, I should probably take this opportunity to introduce myself. My name's Simon Hill. I'm a physiotherapist, nutritionist, and host of this show. What took you so long? 117 episodes in, and here we are, finally. Anyway, better late than never. Just kidding. Plenty of time to go back through the archives, lots of episodes in there on how the food we eat affects gut health, brain health, cardiovascular health, our lifespan, etc. Each week, I sit down with different guests, doctors, dietitians, nutritionists, food system innovators and experts, environmental scientists, and so forth. So we, you and I can piece this puzzle together. What on earth should we eat to feel at our best, minimize our risk of chronic disease, add more years to our life and tread lightly on the planet along the way? Where does the science lie and what are the myths? You get the insights from my brilliant guests with a little bit of input thrown in from me along the way. A two-for-one kind of deal. So this episode... Omega-3s with neurologists, Drs. Dean and Asia Sherzai back on the show. These guys are absolutely brilliant. Authors of the Alzheimer's Solution and soon-to-be authors of the 30-day Alzheimer's Solution. Pioneers in their field, incredibly smart, incredibly humble, and really just dedicated to bettering the health of their local community and beyond. Their information is top quality, as you will see, rather than jumping on here and telling you something is an absolute. They are prepared to acknowledge where things are a little gray. A very important quality of interpreting and communicating nutrition science, if you ask me. And with that said, let's jump into it. This is Drs. Dean and Acia Scherzai. With the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Hey, team, welcome back.
2: Thank you. It's so good to be here with you again, Simon.
1: It's like uh, being with a family member. I know. I feel very, very lucky to to have the access that I do to to both of you. So um, thank you for for joining me again. Your previous episodes are by far some of the most downloaded episodes to date. So there is clearly a real thirst for for evidence-based information to help people optimize uh, brain function and, and prevent cognitive impairment as they age, so thank you so much for supporting the show and being so generous with your time.
0: It's our pleasure. I mean, um, we've said this several times, working with you and others that are in the field that are truly science-based, it's empowering because it feels like you actually have tentacles and you're working together whenever you have questions for us you uh, we get this middle of the night
2: <laughs> text Emails.
0: emails <laughs> and and uh, you know what I love that and vice versa I have questions for you I send them to you and to others right. this network uh, and, and the network actually keeps each other accountable and and true to the science and and we absolutely love
2: that absolutely uh, yeah. it's it's such a gift and to have um you as a channel to disperse Health information out there, um, especially out of the echo chambers of, of science, it's it's wonderful.
1: Yeah, I think it's really important because science, whilst there are very clear takeaways for us, there is a lot of nuance, and it, it takes a bunch of of people coming together and workshopping things and to to really make sense of it, and then to work out well what is this study telling us, and how does it fit in with the rest of the the research, and and therefore how can we use it in our recommendations to, to better the health of the people that we see either clinically or that we're speaking to online. Top line, today's chat is all things omega-3s, what they are, why they're important, how much we need, where we get them from, uh, where the supplementation is needed, etc. and you know, how that may even vary from person to person depending on the diet that they are following. But perhaps to, to preface this conversation, it would be good to go back over, you know, what you guys do as neurologists and, and, and why brain health and educating people about how to take better care of this incredible organ is, is such a clear passion for both of you. As some of
0: your audience m- might have heard us, we actually started our first conversation in life together around this concept. Uh, both of our parents and grandparents, two on each side, had Alzheimer's, and these were brilliant, brilliant people that we loved dearly. And I mean, they were giants in our family. Uh, my grandmother on my paternal side, my grandfather on my maternal side. I think same thing with you, right?
2: Absolutely.
0: Um, there, there were, and, uh, and the amazing things were uh, was that uh, they were. All leaders and and matriarchs and patriarchs of the family, and to lose them in these small measures and and, and bits and parts of themselves, just dissipating, and for them to know that it's dissipating, and these were people that you know prided themselves with their intellect, and and that that was the most painful thing I, I could have ever experienced. In fact, my grandmother was in the same room as me. I was young; I was in my teens. And I had to take care of her in my room and 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 I remember the the terrors, the the anxiety, the fear, the hallucinations. So it, it left a mark in our life. So the first conversation was that, and since then, um, you know, we've been at this for more than twenty years. Um, I know that Aisha doesn't look much older than 20, but but I, I, I'm a little older than 20. <laughs> so we've been at this quite a while and it's been an amazing adventure, a little bit risky because we didn't follow the natural path, the normal path. And then we're making it even more and more risky because as people here will listen and as we talk about our latest research, um, sometimes research is, doesn't have to be clean, In fact, that's the beauty of true science, not bombastic, monosyllabic, binary, um, um, you know, uh, concepts, but finessed, nuanced data that point to a given direction is good enough in science. In fact, even airplanes were created with that kind of level of science. So uh, we love this. We love talking about this stuff. You love talking about this stuff. Um, and, And we know that brain health the most incredible organ we have. Um, Some people might argue with that, but it is the most important uh, organ uh, we have. And uh, we have control over its destiny at the individual level and what we're interested in in, at the community level. We have tremendous control over that outcome. And one of those questions, as it happens to be, and it's not the whole question, there's lots of others, but a very important one as we get to talk about is omega-3. Um, that's that's the that's the beauty of this.
1: So before we jump into that research that you're talking to and the and the two latest reviews that you've spent so much time doing and 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 sifting through all of the research, you sort of just alluded to the fact that you, that the pair of you took a, a different path to I guess the standard path for neurologists, and 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 you took quite a risk there, and perhaps. You know, some people may may look at the path that you took, particularly at the time, as a little bit controversial. Can you explain why it is that you sort of look at brain health and the degenerative brain from a different stance to, I guess, typical view in the field of neurology?
2: Yes. So, as um, as neurologists, um, as uh, doctors trained in medical school and in residencies and fellowships. The usual expectation is for a physician or neurologist to be able to diagnose, be able to treat some of the conditions, and that's basically it. We really aren't, with due respect to, you know, all the doctors and and people in medicine, there's not much focus on prevention and a lot of neurological disorders, a lot of chronic diseases of aging, but mostly neurological disorders um, don't have any or much area of focus on its prevention, and they're quite debilitating. And so being in that field, um, doing a lot of research, um, Dean was in NIH, and he was involved in very high-level molecular research where, you know, I'll let you speak about it, but, you know, one of the kind of research that they did was to inject stem cells in a particular part of the brain and see if it actually functioned better in people who had movement disorders. And I was Um, a technician for functional MRI. So I would, uh, you know, scan people's brains, those who had family history of Alzheimer's disease, for example, that was one of the projects that I was involved in. And day after day, month after month, you would see these people coming into the clinic and the neurologist essentially telling them, by the way, you have dementia or Alzheimer's disease, which is a type of dementia. There's really no medication for it. There's nothing that we can do about it. And this is a good time for you to sit down with your family and decide what you want to do for the rest of your life and for someone to take over your finances, someone to take over the decision-making, because very soon you won't be able to do that by yourself. And so it became a very dark and a cynical place to be. And um, after reading a lot of research and looking at some of the prominent researchers around, like Dr. Elizabeth Berth. Connor, who was involved in the Rancho Bernardo study, where she looked at lifestyle risk factors and disease prevention, cardiovascular disease, and also finding out that Loma Linda existed very close to where we, we were in San Diego back then, that looked at specific ways of life and prevention of very devastating diseases like Alzheimer's disease. We slowly and gradually learned more about it, and we wanted to be in that field. I think we coined the term preventive neurology which means studying the effects of lifestyle to prevent chronic disease of the brain.
1: And in terms of, I guess, the scientific investigation into the aging brain with regards to looking at prevention versus, say, medications for managing symptoms, if you were to, and and it may be more of a uh, sort of guesstimation here, you may not, this data may not be available, but what percentage of government grants and fundraising uh, is going towards preventative neurology versus, say, looking at new medications that can help manage it once someone already has dementia or, or uh, you know, a cognitive impairment? I would
0: easily say it's more than 90% on disease treatment and very little on prevention. It should be actually the reverse, it should be at least 80% prevention and 20% chronic disease. The, the, the statistics are so lopsided, so unequal that, that it's bewildering. Why wouldn't we focus on prevention? And part of it is that most of the time, people that are involved in that kind of research or are in charge of the funding have been trained for decades uh, with diseases in mind. And, and it, it should be. I mean, we're not of the school that you know we throw the baby with the bathwater you know it's uh, medicine is important medicine works it's an incredible it has done an amazing job when it comes to public health it has done an amazing job as far as our mortality morbidities but it's time for us to start focusing on prevention and that's not the mindset in medical schools that's not the mindset in most graduate schools for that matter and so that's why when we first started talking about prevention and we said, we're going to go to Loma Linda from UCSD, which was the number one place in neuroscience. Every mentor said that that's career suicide. Yeah. Um, and uh, we decided to take that path. Um, uh, yeah, it, it, it's controversial, it was controversial, but it's less, somewhat less controversial now.
1: I mean, I, I'm just imagining the, the sort of grant money and, and research funds and trying, trying to sort of get a feel for how this space is now today. Do you feel like we're very much still holding out for this magic cure, this magic pill that will just reverse Alzheimer's and do you think that will ever happen in the first place? And then the second part of that question would be just recapping some of the information you shared a few episodes ago around the serious sort of dent that we could put into the burden of dementia by establishing healthy lifestyle practices and being able to delay it?
2: Yeah, there, I think there's been a lot of progress as when it comes to establishing certain um, pathogenesis or understanding certain paths of disease development and its remedy. I, I think there's been a lot of advances and um, I'm not sure if it's going to be one pill or one medication that would, quote unquote, fix this disease, Alzheimer's, I think it would probably be a multifactorial um, approach to it. Um, And, you know, every year we go to the Alzheimer's Association International Conference and every year there's been a lot of focus on uh, these medications that work in mice, but then when they apply it to human beings, it doesn't work at all. Year after year after year. There's been some advances as far as lifestyle and prevention is concerned, which is quite uh, encouraging. And I think that has really influenced a lot of neurologists to look at the bigger picture, to not just address dementia by looking at the pathology only, but to address lifestyle and prevention as well.
0: I think um, one of the breakthroughs will, will happen when, when people are able to detect the disease a lot earlier, because the earlier you catch the process the more likely that you can make a difference be it lifestyle or medication even we think that if you catch the disease very early before it even it manifests but you have the signs of it you uh, and that there can be more than one medicine it's not going to be one medicine because it's multiple pathways that might abate that 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 crystallization that process from developing for, further and there's some evidence of that already, uh, that um, uh, some of the uh, antibodies work to some extent, minimally, when it's early in this stage. Uh, but uh, but here's the thing, what I tell people is, okay, so if you assume you have the disease, if you assume that you have the risk, if the, the word disease makes you uncomfortable, if you assume that you have the risk, and we all have it to some extent, right? And And live as though you have the risk, and that means live a certain type of lifestyle, you will significantly reduce your risk. There is your cure right there. Uh, 10 years ago, we actually said 90% of Alzheimer's can be prevented. That was so controversial that even BBC uh, decided not to. Well, they, they interviewed us, the but. Yeah, segment was canceled <laughs> and another one. So How now, you? <laughs> the, two years ago, on Alzheimer's Association International Conference, and many studies showed 60% of lifestyle. uh, Alzheimer's can be prevented through lifestyle. Now, 60% with their kind of lifestyle, meaning by what they consider healthy or what they could actually find in the population. But we say that if you live the optimal health, which almost no population has done, you can reduce it by 90%. Irrespective, even 60% is profound. That's, we're talking about the most expensive disease in the world. That's right. It's, it's literally 5 times more expensive than the second most costly disease in America, heart disease. 500 billion dollars total cost for Alzheimer's, 100 billion dollars total cost 120 for heart disease. So if we can reduce that by 60% by implementing marginal lifestyle changes in the communities, shouldn't that be the focus? 60% of 500 that's, that's 300 billion dollars for US alone. I did my math, I had my, yeah. so it's, it, it, that's, that's the direction we should be going, irrespective of whether there will be a pill. So yeah, we're very optimistic.
1: Well said. And, and one of the, the major parts of lifestyle being diet and then within diet, omega-3s often comes up as a particularly important nutrient for brain health. And I understand that that you recently did a review to look at omega-3s and and how they affect the degenerative brain. And then that inspired you to also look at how omega-3s affect the developing brain in in infants and in children and adolescents. So I'm really interested to, to unpack that. Can you maybe just to start this, to preface it, give me a little bit of a an understanding as to what inspired this review in the first place?
0: Before I pass it to Aisha, who's <laughs> amazing with this, but um, I, I want to kind of titillate the audience. We think we have insight into something really interesting. Maybe it's a little more nuance, but it's uh, we think that uh, it's, it's a little bit of extrapolation, but it's actually meaningful extrapolation that came from the, all the papers, both papers and others that we looked at. Um, And that extrapolation is that there is effect, but the effect is in certain populations. So I'll leave you so that by the end of this talk, they'll, they'll, they'll see what those population mean. Yeah.
2: I think we were just curious, like anyone else, and as neurologists and as people in the front line, with patients asking us each and every day, what do I do? Uh, should I take a supplement or not? And in the recent times, there've been a lot of discussion, especially people who are plant-based, whether omega-3 supplementation was an important, should a, should be an important part of their diet. And you know, being hopefully good scientists and responsible citizens, I think it was important for us to look at the totality of the data before we make any recommendations instead of the, the the typical unnecessary um, conversations without any data. So we took some time and we just went through everything. And lo and behold, we had two very comprehensive reviews together and um, we're uh, submitting that to get published very soon. And it was very exciting to see the nuance. I think if there's one word that I could pick to explain what we found, and I think it should be the theme of, last year's work is just nuanced. There's a lot of layers and layers and complexities that needs to be unfolded and discussed.
1: And I think that's just a a reflection of of science and nutrition science in general. It is very nuanced. and, And typically when I see someone trying to sell absolutes, I have a little bit of an alarm bell. Um, it's going off. Now, it's it, it, similar to industry funding. It makes me want to look a little bit deeper in terms of, of, of what they're saying. Um, that's just the nature of nutrition science. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test apob levels fortunately this has now been made easier by inside tracker a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging genetics and biometric data from harvard mit and tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results with the new edition of apob Get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to InsideTracker.com forward slash Simon. That's InsideTracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends. Perhaps before we go into sort of defining omega threes and and then and then jumping into some of the things that you found and why this is important for the listeners, maybe just recap what the reviews involved. What does that look like? You know how many studies, how long did this take you? and and you know what was this process like? Was this you guys sitting at home with the the big whiteboard walls <laughs> and 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 you know trawling through yeah. hundreds and hundreds of studies, give, give me a bit of insight into that process.
0: Sure. Well, um, first of all, you find a willing student. Uh, It's always great to have a willing student who's motivated. (laughs) Nothing like... (laughs) Yeah. So then you do a lot of directing and then you are also involved and you bring them into the whiteboard sessions and all. Uh, But the idea is you create a null hypothesis, which is... uh, This is the beauty of science, which is what do you do to negate your hypotheses? What would it take to show null effect, meaning that there is no effect on, um, uh, of omega-3 on brain health. Um, so you start with that statement. It's a little bit symbolic because people do it, but then they go and do fishing uh, expeditions to find the result they want. And we have that in our own uh, field and every other field as well. Uh, and then what you do is do uh, inclusion and exclusion criteria meaning what kind of papers will you involve of course we're not going to involve case studies and case series and we want to make sure that there are studies that are robust enough you look for randomized uh, you know clinical trials uh, if there it's not randomized clinical trials if it's retrospective meaning looking backwards or prospective but it's not randomized it should be robust enough and that they should have control for all the confounds things that might make the study weak so you create your inclusion exclusion criteria, which actually is your methodology in a review paper, and then you do your search. and layer by layer it drops from you know several thousand to several hundred to usually in, in the in the 50 to 80. Uh, um, article range, it depends. Um, and if it's still a lot, that means that you really have not defined your terms well enough and, and then you define your terms.
2: When we first started the search, uh, we wanted to publish something together, you know, in children and elderly, but it was so extensive and there was so much information that we had to split it into two because the disease process and the the effect of omega-3 on brain health is so different in, in children or neonates versus young adults and and elderly. Um, and we also wanted to look at the source of funding because that's a very important topic mm-hmm. and a very important aspects of research. You know, who's funding the study? Is it, <laughs> is it a supplement company or was it an NIH um, grant that was supporting this? So we included that. We included dosages. And uh, really, even during our search and writing the paper, there were so many different aspects that we we would find and we'd say, well, we didn't include that in there, so better go and restart and maybe add another column to that table. Uh, so it was a lot of fun. It was. Yeah. It
1: was. So the idea is rather than than looking at the results of one single paper, it is to to go out and find the highest quality of evidence from multiple trials and different studies from all around the world, different researchers, and see if there is a significant effect, which is is going to be hopefully a more reliable indicator of a true relationship than just looking at one single study. Absolutely. Correct. Yes.
2: And that's why you have to um, set your preferences and set your inclusion criteria, Dean was saying, ahead of time and see what falls in that category.
0: Yeah. One of the things that a lot of people do, like I said, fishing experiments after the fact, Once they don't see the result they want, then they go back and keep looking for or they loosen the parameters until they get the result they want. Right. That's where bad science is actually fairly common. And that's why people get all you always see and and the reason one of the forces are negative results are harder to publish. Mm. You know, the the positive uh, result bias is is evident.
1: Yeah, well they're less sexy, right?
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Which, you know, is is hugely impactful because those results, even though they're negative, they're very important. And when they're not being published, it's giving a a sort of false sense of what this relationship could be.
0: Exactly. I'll tell you, so when you you look at meta-analysis, one thing that nobody talks about is that all that meta-analysis is based on the positive results or the published results. And the published results have a, cut off left uh, curve, the left side, or the negative results have never been published. So it's already skewed towards the positive. So yeah, it's a meta-analysis, it's great, all these arguments on internet and YouTube, yeah, this meta-analysis showed this, and wait a second, how did you pick your papers in the first place, and did you ever go back and see, you know, in the clinicaltrials.gov when they published, um, um, when before they started doing the research, they have to go on clinicaltrials.gov and put their name or an equivalent wherever there is. Did you look at all the papers that were supposed to do the research and they were never published? And if you haven't included those, it's skewed. It's completely skewed. So there's a lot to be done if you want to do the right thing. Um, uh, and 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 sometimes it's it's a bit of a paralysis. But I think if you look deeply, you always find nuance, which is incredible value. I love the statement you said. And if you, as soon as we see. Bombastic or binary uh, results uh, uh, or absolute results—we know that this is this is false, especially in nutrition.
1: Okay, so the topic of the review being omega threes, I want to get into some of these results and 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 learnings that uh, people can can walk away with. Perhaps we start by defining omega threes. Uh, as a starting point and going through what the different types are. So then when we're talking about some of the findings, it makes a little more sense.
2: Absolutely. So, well, starting from the very beginning, we know that um, we consume different uh, different combination and different array of fats. And um, there are fats that are not essential, which means that our body actually creates them and uh, we have enough of them in our system. And then there are essential fatty acids, which are fats that are not created by our our bodies, and we need to consume them in the form of food. Omega-3 fatty acids uh, are the essential fatty acids, um, and they're very important for multiple different functions in the body, but especially for brain health, because they tend to be important for transmission of messages from cell to cell, for the development of the infrastructure of the brain, um, and especially when it comes to cell membrane function. And there's so much when it comes to cell membrane function because it's not just um, maintaining the infrastructure, but it's about how messages transmitted, how different particles are created, and how the fluidity and the permeability of the cells are affected. And, you know, the brain being a dynamic organ as it is, it's incredibly important for it to function very well. So the omega-3 fatty acids are needed on a regular basis, and they need to be received very regularly. And um, there are two classes of essential fatty acids, the omega-3s and omega-6s. We need both of them, but we get a whole lot of omega-6s in our diet through vegetable oils and processed foods And so the amount of omega-6 is quite high compared to omega-3s. Omega-3s are important as an anti-inflammatory agent in the body. It actually helps us with the clotting system. And in many ways, the two are oppositional to each other, you know, and they they maintain the proper functions of our body. But um, because of the kind of diets that we consume, that the Western diets Uh, like I said earlier, we get very little omega-3s compared to omega-6s. And that's where the problem essentially starts. So the goal should always be to increase the consumption of omega-3s and lower the consumption of omega-6s.
0: In fact, that ratio has changed significantly over the last maybe 50 to 80 years. In the past, the ratio wasn't that wide between omega-6 and omega three. Now we're talking significant difference, significant lower amounts of omega-3 in our diet compared to omega-6. And as we talk about mechanism, that matters at so many levels. The two beginning or the origin molecules in omega-6 and omega-3 are linoleic acid and alpha-linoleic acid, respectively. Linoleic acid for uh, omega-6s and alpha-linoleic acid for omega-3s there are 18 carbon molecules. Human beings and most a lot of animals don't have the enzymes to produce those. So you have to get it through diet. Now, from that, we get from ALA, which is the omega-3 pathway, uh, an incredible cascade started for coagulation and, like Aisha said, inflammation or anti-inflammation. And that balance is maintained. And as we get older... And and I'll talk about the development side when babies and all that, that's a different mechanism altogether. It's a a process of need. They need incredible amounts of omega-3 for the developing brain. A brain that's actually doubling every year up to age five. It's just bewilderingly developing fast. So it needs, it has uh, tremendous requirements. But as we get older, it's the other way. We actually have to make sure that we have enough omega-3s for abatement of inflammation or maintaining the balance of inflammation and anti-inflammation, a little bit towards anti-inflammation. Because naturally, as we get older, we have cumulative inflammation because of arthritis, because of infections, because of aging process, because of the foods we eat, because of the environmental assaults. So we have this background noise of inflammation that's no longer equal, it's actually on the higher side. So we're actually cheating towards anti-inflammation. Mm-hmm and anticoagulation. So that's where the omega-3 comes in. And that's just two of the processes. There are many other processes as well. So ALA is important, but beyond ALA, ALA is usually converted within the the cell, but a particular part of the cell into plasmic reticulum Mm -hmm. to convert it to a 20-carbon molecule. Again, the omega-3 polyunsaturated fats means they have double bonds. If they have no double bonds, they're straight molecule, they're saturated. That's a different kind of thing. But when they have double bonds, they're kinked, and that's good because it keeps fluidity of the molecule. They can serve as signals. Now they go as kinked molecules with three bonds. That's omega three. Well, the, the three part is because the first one starts at third carbon. Sorry, too too much uh, detail. But it's it's so cool because it's converted in there to omega uh, to a twenty carbon molecule which is EPA, and then it's converted to DPA, which again, and then it's actually transferred out. Here's a tricky thing. This is actually a big factor. The transferring in out from endoplasmic to the peroxisome, which is another organelle in the cell, is a high energy process, which nobody talks about. Body doesn't like to spend unnecessary energy. Mm -hmm. So it's transferred to the peroxisome, where it's actually converted to a 22-carbon molecule, DHA, which is profoundly important for the brain cells and cells in general, membrane, to the transmission
1: between, to signaling, everything. Is that an explanation for why you get about, say, 5% of ALA converting into EPA, but into DHA, it's only around 1%, give or take? Correct.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. So multiple studies... um, uh, noting ALA metabolism in healthy people have shown that um, approximately about 8% of ALA is converted to EPA and about anywhere 0 to 4% of it is converted yeah. to DHA. Um, and it's different in men and women. Women tend to Convert to DHA, but like a little, um, a little uh, more than young men. I think estrogen has to do with that. So about nine percent of their ALA is converted to DHA, and, and
0: your audience will notice that difference. And between Aisha and I, she's got better <laughs> e- conversion rates than me. So. Somebody's,
2: somebody's fishing for compliments <laughs> well, here. No,
0: speaking but, of but
2: yes, I think that's, a, that's, that's an important factor, yes. It just takes a lot of energy and a lot of energy in the sense there are multiple different steps that needs to be um, taken for ALA to be converted to DHA.
1: Okay, and in case anyone's thinking or wondering here the difference between, say, EPA and DHA, more from a a brain uh, health perspective, which is the the most important of these long chain uh, omega-3 fatty acids? We believe, and many believe, uh,
0: DHA. DHA is the the more important factor for the brain and brain metabolism and all of the things that we talked about. Um, And that's the limiting factor. Yeah, we have minimal access to it and can quickly become dangerously low.
2: That's right.
1: Okay, so the the purpose of your review was to look at omega three overall, or was it zooming in and looking at like a specific type of of omega three, like DHA or EPA?
0: Overall, yeah. uh, um, because to be honest, you go in, you try to go in with um, with the idea that maybe you you'll gather more information than you knew. I mean, and and you do all the time. It's there are always going to be new data. And, and to us, it's laughable when we see on these uh, forums where people fighting each other over omega-3 consumption or not consumption. It's almost like they've made a religion. Science. There's no need to get emotional. <laughs> you know, <laughs> take it easy. Calm down. If you find out tomorrow that I was wrong with this assumption or extrapolation or even interpretation, that's fine.
2: Yeah. Happy to change uh,
0: our happy mind. Happy to change our mind and with I'd the I'd right And I'd like data. to actually,
2: we, we decided to say this at the end, but I think we should say it multiple times during this conversation there's, we really look forward to changing our perspective with new data. There really is nothing wrong with being wrong now because you have a certain amount of data or certain type type of data. So as data changes, as we get more information, we will definitely change.
0: And 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 that kind of perspective also helps you with the data you have in front of you because it makes you circumspect, it makes you make you know uh, be careful about overstating, overgeneralizing, and and where you are extrapolating. State, this is an extrapolation. Whenever we say 90% of Alzheimer's can be prevented, it's an extrapolation. For God's sakes, please don't take that as if we've, you know, there's a paper that came out 90% exact. There's no such thing. So the the science on omega-3 is the same. There's quite a bit of data. Uh, There's pattern that shows trend, direction. And that trend is strong in in, in direction. And, And here's the thing that trend and direction is strong in certain population and certain groups. Okay, that's not as satisfactory as saying take 2,000 milligrams right now every day and you'll be cured of all diseases, but it's good enough for science, for what we have right now.
1: Mm. So let's go through that. What, what did the reviews show regarding the sort of levels of omega-3 and, and brain health for different populations and what uh, looks to be optimal based on the current data that's available?
2: Looking at all um, omega-3s, DHA is really important for the brain, and um, it exhibits neuroprotective properties, and it's qualitatively the most important omega-3 polyunsaturated fat, so it's studied most often. And um, from, the, from the review that we did, um, let's just start with the ones that we did in children. Um, among neonates, um, we also looked at women, um, pregnant women, lactating women um, who were supplementing with omega-3s or who uh, were eating a lot of foods that were high in DHA, namely fish and marine uh, animals. They tended to have uh, babies who had higher levels of DHA, obviously, in, in their serum. And, you know, as far as cognitive health is concerned, there were certain domains of cognition. So if not all of cognition, but there were specific domains of cognition that seemed to be better. So say, for example, their attention in some of the studies, the attention of these children seemed to be better the ones that had higher omega-3 fatty acids in their serum compared to those who had lower ones. And um, obviously there are multiple hypotheses and um, there there are multiple ways of describing why it's important for children to have higher DHA levels in their serum because of the massive growth of of the brain during that period. So by that terms, it actually makes sense. And this has translated into some dietary... um, uh, um, encouragements and guidelines for uh, pregnant and lactating women and children who um, are growing?
0: Uh, the data, again, was not perfect. It wasn't strong. Agreed. But uh, there was uh, evidence that prenatally, when they were supplemented, the, they did better with attention, vision, And language, those two were weak, but several papers showed significance. Again, you never saw this across all papers. Some some papers actually showed null null results, but most of them showed positive, especially the ones that were more robust and bigger. Now, uh, this was true. There were three populations in the developing brain paper. So the prenatal, uh, nursing children, and then adolescents. And in all of them, there seems to be a positive effect when it came to mood, attention, depression, and, and uh, vision. Uh, definitely, there was a trend towards improvement. Although they were weak, the confounding factor that came again and again was there seemed to be a washout effect, meaning that if there was an improvement, but then when they followed them over time, and to me, again, I'll tell you where my extrapolation is here, when they followed them over time, that, that effect washed out. And from my perception, it appears that, and, and one paper actually alluded to this, it appears that there seems to be effect of socioeconomic status that seems to take over. So yeah, omega-3 is great, but socioeconomic status and all the other things that come with that seem to overtake the effect of omegas. Again, this is an extrapolation. The non-extrapolation part is there seems to be trends towards improvement with uh, with omega-3 when it comes to attention and, and and the other variables that we said. But there seems to be more nuance to it. And the more nuance is that it's not just omega-3 alone. There's all these other factors that are probably even more important than omega-3. Yet, but in this paper, we wanted to talk about just the omega-3.
1: Makes it hard to tease out, doesn't it, when, when things like attention and focus and learning are influenced by so many different factors, be it nutrition or, or, you know, other parts of our lifestyle.
0: Absolutely. And, and when your yeah. studies, the biggest one is 500 people over a few years. Right. Then you don't have the power to be able to deduce or to delineate what confound is, is the one that's affecting it. Is it right. socioeconomic? Is it mother's education? Oh, the other things they looked at was mother's education was another factor. Right. And, and environmental. Oh, and smoking was another factor when you have only 500 people, and that was the biggest study, Mm -hmm. it makes it difficult.
1: It may also be as well that the, and and I'm going out on a limb here, but the more educated the mother is, the more likely they are supplementing with DHA and EPA because they're exposed to more healthcare services and are being given that information. And, you know, therefore their child having better attention, is it the fact that they're from that socioeconomic class or, or is it the DHA directly? Um, but in terms of the, the sort of risk versus reward, I think is where we kind of land here to, to a point, right? It's people are going to want to know, well, okay, based on the data today, then what should I do? If I'm a pregnant woman, should I supplement with DHA or EPA? Uh, or if I have a, a child, should I make sure he's getting DHA through his diet or, or taking a supplement? Is that is that something that you've thought about? Sort of risk versus reward, and and where do you land in terms of of being able to give recommendations to people around how much they should be taking? Is is it just is it, is it sort of extrapolating from the studies that you looked at that did see benefit in looking at the, the, the sort of most common doses used?
0: So um, before I get to that, is uh, one of the things you were talking about is um, the um, plateau effect, meaning that people who are healthy, like you said, mothers that were taking, you know, having good nutrition, and people who were healthy, both in children and in adults, you didn't see any difference. But that doesn't speak to the beneficial effect of omega-3. There seems to be a threshold. When you reach that threshold, there doesn't appear to be any benefit beyond that. So the one word that people should get used to is there's a threshold. Um, And and there seems to be a threshold even when it comes to dosage. Uh, Even in the cardiovascular studies, the same thing happened. Yeah, people, there's some studies that showed that people had less MI, but when it comes to mortality, As far as dosage, after 500, there was not much more. Or in certain populations that were already eating fish, there was no no benefit beyond a certain amount. So there's a definite threshold effect that you're talking about. Mothers that are already educated are doing all these other things. Maybe that's why you don't see there's a null effect. You're actually washing out the positive effect. So more studies are needed. But yet, still, there are certain populations that we think, especially developing brain, Given that DHA is so important and given that we think that it's really difficult, it's not impossible, but we think it's fairly difficult to maintain appropriate amounts of um, DHA, but just through ALA, we and this is our extrapolation, we think that there are certain populations and certain people at risk that would benefit from supplementation. Um, and definitely a developing brain is one of them. Now, look at ALA. In order to, to maintain an appropriate amount of DHA from ALA, it's not just the fact that you have to you know, have one or two t- tablespoons of chia and flax seeds and all of this, but you also have to reduce your omega-6 levels because that transmission, that enzyme that converts ALA to the next level is the same enzyme that's also converting the lenoleic acid to omega-6 pathway. So there's competition. And in that competition, guess who has the advantage? Mm Omega-6. So if you want that enzyme to work, to transfer, and already it's doing a poor job, you better reduce your alcohol usage because of liver. You have to, uh, or eliminate, you have to significantly reduce your omega-6, which is in everything nowadays, even in air. Um, I'm exaggerating. Uh, So that makes it a little difficult. This is not that simple as somebody coming on, you know, saying, "Oh." this paper said this and therefore nothing that picture that we're painting makes it kind of important to err on the side of supplementation and the developing brain now we're not taking that lightly we we do understand that not one process a process doesn't happen in isolation in the body when you give a vitamin it's not just that one pathway it's multiple pathways are affected, and we also understand that in certain populations, it increases cancer risk. Not omega three per se, but other vitamins. But I think the totality, especially in a different developing brain, points to uh, either being incredibly diligent about your intake, food, and not what not to eat, or supplement.
1: And in terms of the the amount, is that something that you are sort of hesitant to talk about, or do we do we have enough data to look at, say? For example, I think you know most of the recommendations for pregnant women land between sort of 250 to 300 milligrams of DHA and EPA combined. Um, and for children, it can, it can vary, but there, there are different amounts and different supplements. Was there any consistency in the studies to give people a bit of an idea as to what they should be looking for?
2: No, unfortunately, it was quite variable and there was no consistency in dosages. There was a vi- very wide range. Um, and then even certain studies didn't really highlight the amount that uh, individuals were getting. So that's that's the part that we need more answers on. And hopefully we can have more detailed research done to find out specifically what dosages would be appropriate. And in,
0: in, in the in the aging brain, it seems to be on the higher side, but you can't just jump to that because what is, what you know, a thousand milligrams and above, what does that mean? It, because it's not benign. I mean, these are anti-inflammatory and anticoagulants. So, um, and they have interactions. So you have to always do this under the supervision of your physician. They're, they're not without consequence and um, the dosage is not really well delineated,
1: to be honest. So I guess, well, f- from my end, and you can tell me if you agree or not, there are national sort of recommendations for DHA, APA. Um, you know, I know on the NHMRC website in, in Australia, there are sort of uh, an adequate intake level. And off the top of my head for one to eight-year-olds, it's it's around... 50, 60 milligrams a day and then it sort of progressively goes up towards as you become an adult, would you say that that's probably the the best information for people to go off for the time being?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think uh, following the, uh, the said guidelines so far until we get more information would be the most appropriate thing to do. Absolutely.
1: Okay, cool. So to sort of recap that, we're talking here around uh, infants, we're talking about children and, and adolescents at, at the moment in terms of the the research that you found and and what you're saying is there appears to be a benefit. The exact specifics and dosage are very hard to determine. We need further studies, but and again, correct me if I'm uh, making any you know incorrect summaries here, um, but. As a sort of insurance policy, it would be a good idea for people to look to get a direct source of DHA and EPA if they're not already consuming fish, which is the, the sort of primary source of, of DHA in our diets. We, we believe so. We,
0: we think that uh, the data, uh, as, as, as um, imperfect as it is, uh, points to that direction at this point
1: and do you think there would be i mean it's 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 essentially it's a fat molecule do you think there would be any risks associated with taking a direct source of of DHA or EPA
2: not that we know of there's no indication that it could potentially cause any damage to children or adults for that matter there was uh, there was some confusion about you know certain um, uh, processes some some cancers. Uh, some prostate. people have actually talked about um, omega three fatty acid supplementation increasing the risk of prostate cancer. But honestly, the data is so weak, and there were so many flawed processes in in, in that statement. That um, um, that's not something to really deter us from uh, taking DHA as a supplementation.
1: <laughs> okay, cool. That's very clear. Let's move on now to adults and what you found in terms of omega-3s and the aging brain.
0: With the data that we have, there appears to be evidence that uh, certain populations might benefit from this. The at-risk populations or, or those at need seem to benefit the most. Now, I'll explain why that could be a true statement or it could be a confound of a threshold phenomenon or other phenomena such as not having the tools to detect change. Okay, I'll get to that. So it appears that the only signal that you see consistently, fairly consistently in, in aging brains are those with MCI. MCI is actually short for mild cognitive impairment. These are people who have cognitive impairment more than normal. They're in their 50s, 60s. Um, uh, and they, it, it, usually MCI presages, predicts, um, uh, dementia. And, and and not everybody with MCI develops dementia, but a fairly large percentage, 50%, depending on which series you look at, can develop dementia. Um, and so that means that they are at risk. And when you looked at this population versus a normal young population versus a de- population with Alzheimer's, the one that you saw the, the signal more consistently in was MCIs, the, the ones that were at risk. And there could be two reasons, maybe because this population needs it the most, Therefore, they're actually using it the most. In fact, there's some indirect data that when patients that have APOE4, which is a gene that puts you at risk for Alzheimer's, where they actually take more omega-3 from your blood than those that are not APOE4, which means their need is more. Why? Because APOE4 patients, those that are at risk for Alzheimer's, actually inefficiently use omega-3 and also oxidize Uh, ApoE3. So that means that they're not using it properly, so they need more of it. So at the minimum, you know that those that are ApoE4 positive, and if you have one gene from one parent, your risk goes up four times. If you have two genes, your risk goes up 12 times. And and it appears that one of the mechanisms is through this, Mm -hmm. they need more omega 3. That doesn't give you just a picture into that particular population, it gives you a picture into greater brain need as you get older. As you're going through certain traumas or certain challenges, cognitive or infectious or other, your need is going to be greater. So omega-3 might help in that population. But in younger population where they have enough Mm omega-3 or in those who are consuming omega-3 already through fish or others, and a lot of studies were flawed because they didn't take that component into consideration, Omega-3 didn't show any signal,
2: right. any change. So so that's the threshold effect, essentially.
1: I think that's a really important thing for people to understand. If you're looking at a group of people and you introduce an omega-3 supplement and you find no effect, well, that could be largely determined by what's their background intake of omega-3s in their diet. If they're already consuming two or three pieces of salmon a week, which is a fatty fish that's rich in DHA, then to your point earlier where you're talking about a threshold or a ceiling effect, it may be that the addition of omega-3 has no effect on their cognition. But for someone who wasn't consuming the two or three pieces of salmon a week, the, the addition of omega-3 supplements could have led to an improvement. And it makes it hard to sort of, if they're not segmenting the study To look at different populations based on background DHA intake, it makes it very hard for us to create recommendations for everyone.
2: This is the most important and a very crucial statement for people to take away from all of the data that's out there. That's incredibly important. The idea that if somebody is eating enough and it doesn't show is the reason why we have so many confusing outcomes Um, and uh, also for people who are not eating fish, I think it's important for them to consider this fact. And there's so much data out there. There's some PET scans. So PET scan is a type of uh, an imaging that they do for the brain that looks at metabolism. And there have been some elegant PET scan studies show that um, adult brains can take more omega-3 if they are deficient in it. And especially when it's a developing brain or an aging brain, they need a whole lot more than people who don't have any um, health issues.
0: And the other reason that, I don't want to make it even more complicated, but I'll tell you that ahead of time that I can't give recommendation at this point with the data we have for people who are young to take omega-3, because not because I don't believe that it's useful, but because I, we don't have good data at all. Uh, but the reason you might not have seen signal in the younger people is because another type of ceiling effect. The tools that would measure cognitive outcomes are not sensitive enough to detect any cognitive change in a, in a young person, in a 30-year-old. Mm-hmm. Or it wasn't well-designed, which is a more common thing because they, they, they did a very small study for a very short time with a very bad tool and they expected an outcome. That's you know that, That's a lot of studies that are done that's like right.
1: that. So, if you're a, a young, healthy adult right now, in terms of deciding, okay, whether I whether I should or shouldn't be taking, say, an algae oil supplement, a direct source of DHA EPA, I'm talking about someone here who perhaps is not eating fish. Would it be a good idea to say get blood cell omega three index tested to do it to run a blood test and see what their levels are? Is that you know, is that a good test for identifying if your body is in need of more DHA, or are there you know any limitations of of that omega three index test that we need to be aware of?
2: That's a good question, and there's no right or wrong answer. Honestly, most of the studies look at blood cell or RBC omega three index as um, as a biomarker for. Uh, omega-3 fatty acids. Um, I am aware of some uh, groups um, in Europe and in Canada coming up with specific questionnaires that have very close correlation with that blood test to find out whether somebody is consuming enough omega-3 fatty acids or not. And if you look at the list of those questions, it's about whether they're taking supplements And a list of 12 or 13 different kind of fish on how often they're consuming it. So the bigger picture is if you're not consuming fish or um, any marine uh, animals, that is important for you to be not concerned, but be aware of your consumption, and it wouldn't hurt to get tested.
0: The, the picture is a little even more complicated. Yeah. These tests are not perfectly reliable. Agreed. I mean, uh, the, the peripheral blood tests are definitely very low sensitivity and specificity.
2: That was my uh, next point.
0: Yeah, sorry. Yeah, you want to... <laughs> no, 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 no.
2: What I wanted to actually add was <clears throat> that, uh, like you and I were uh, reading the other day, having a high RBC omega-3 fatty acid status doesn't necessarily mean that it's high in the central nervous system either.
0: Yeah, we haven't made that correlation consistently with RBC and and central nervous system. We were just reading about a new uh, correlation, which might become a a standard. Uh, Ironically, it's indirect. uh, They've done studies of um, BDNF, and its relationship with um, uh, omega three
2: brain derived uh, neurotrophic factor,
0: and there seems to be a relation. So, not to go on a little tangent, but there's, the, but nonetheless, the recommendation at this point is for young people. You, you know, it's your choice. Um, would I do it? Uh, I I, will, I myself would do it. But, but to be honest, it's not as strong an extrapolation as when I talk about the elderly or the young people.
2: And here's another layer of complexity into this. So there are individuals who may have a family history of Alzheimer's yes. disease, right? If, say, for example, a grandparent or a parent has Alzheimer's disease, you may want to be concerned in, the, in, in, in a way where, you know, you could potentially be a heterozygote for ApoE4, which means that you may have one allele or maybe homozygote for the ApoE4 genotype. In that situation, having a family history and being a heterozygote, you probably would benefit from an omega-3 supplementation. But if you're a heterozygote and you have no family history, which is about, you know, 25% of um the population in the United States, not all of them tend to develop Alzheimer's only twenty five percent do. So again, you know just kind of weighing all of the risk factors and where you are in life, what kind of what kind of potential disease processes that run in your family will help you make that uh, actually decision.
0: I should clarify so beautiful. that's what my the reason I, I would take it because I have two family members me too who have uh, who had Alzheimer's early on. And and the data there is that there seems to be benefit uh, for those people. So I would take it. The rest of the people there now, if they're getting older, and there's memory issues, uh, I think then that would I would I would uh, lean towards using uh, or uh, partaking in omega threes.
1: Yeah, for me personally, and and this again is just another anecdote that may help the listeners work out their own. Decision for them based on their own circumstances, which I think is a nice way of doing it, uh, is both of my grandmothers. Well, one's passed away, but she she suffered from dementia, and the other one's still alive has dementia now, and we can talk about that maybe in a, in a little bit. But um, and and my father has uh, had multiple heart attacks, his father had heart attacks. So the, the cardiovascular research is interesting to me. I mean, the data, again, there isn't perfectly clear, but there is a bit of a signal around some benefit, particularly for people who are, who are not consuming fish which I think is is interesting. And I sort of look at it from a precautionary principle point of view. I mean, the major meta-analyses already show that vegetarians and vegans are protected against cardiovascular disease. So that's great, but maybe it can be further optimized. So... I, and when I look at a, the studies looking at omega three index, and you've pointed out some interesting limitations of that tool, but when when you do look at them, vegans tend to be a little bit lower than people who are consuming fish. So I think that's just important for us to acknowledge and and, and you know as you say, make that decision based on your life, your risk factors, your family history, and and go from there. The the bit around the, the aging brain, you've spoken to that a little bit uh, more here. The, sorry, the brain that is, is already being affected. They're, they're experiencing cognitive impairment. Can you just run through any specific trials or what could people expect? Say they have a family member. Um, I'm thinking here of, of my grandmother. She has her good days and her bad days. Probably something that is is quite common in this area, and fortunately, she she still on her good days remembers her her family. Um, she gets quite confused and anxious on other days, and gets a lot of mental fatigue. So she, it could be just a few minutes with her, and she's already sort of had enough on those days. Um, what 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 did the research show in terms of someone who already has this cognitive impairment has set in they they, they the damage is done does supplementation with omega-3s seem to have you know any sort of uh, great tangible effect
0: no for for people who've already had dementia there doesn't seem to be any benefit well uh, again I'm so sorry to the audience I'm going to make it even painfully uh, uncomfortable again it's and I think that partly that might be true. Maybe it's the the, the the pathway, the cascade has started, and it's difficult to pull that back. Uh, but the other thing could be because what you just described, the cognitive state vacillates so much that in order to delineate a true signal, your numbers have to be so large in your study that you can actually normalize the signal so you can see a delta, <laughs> In order to see a change, in order to see a true difference and not just the signal of each person vacillating, you really need a large data. And none of these studies were large enough and long enough to detect that. So that confound might have been the reason why we don't see any signal in people who have dementia. Right. So we're stuck with that.
1: That's a really good point because you could baseline test someone on a bad day, give them an omega-3 supplement and then when you retest, they're having a good day and you you're, you could attribute those benefits to the supplementation when in effect it was just that natural good and bad day pattern.
0: And it's right. not just the emotional. Right. The, you and I see the emotional component. The cognitive component vacillates even wider and more frequently throughout the day and week. So uh, uh, there's a you know, we talked about ceiling effect. There's a floor effect. Not many of our t- tools can detect Change below a certain amount, uh, below a certain decline. So I think one of the reasons that might we might have not seen a signal from omega three usage is because of that. But given that there's no signal, I can't make a recommendation. I it would be that's beyond extrapolation. That's me, just you know. Uh, taking mechanistic ideas and just... Uh, which I see a lot of doctors. I lo- <laughs> I've had a lot of it's doctors trend, in my family, yes. when they get older, they start making all kinds of theories uh, left and right. right. And, and I, I don't think I'm that old yet.
1: Not yet. Yeah. Okay, so the, the trials then that that did show some improvements, what, what sort of population were they? If they weren't people that had dementia already set in, can you sort of just describe what that person would look like, what they would be experiencing. So perhaps someone listening, if they're going through that or has a family member going through that, they can then think about what these studies show us.
0: Um, so it's usually the people that have, are starting to have memory problems right. and the people that have family history and risk. Um, the people that have been defined already as MCI, which is mild cognitive impairment, or even before MCI, we call them subjective cognitive impairment. Uh, those are the people that see benefit. And, and and one of the main reasons is because in those, they're not vacillating a lot. They're starting some memory issues and you can measure them clearly. But also I think that that's where the brain can actually recover significantly at that stage, especially if you give them the right nutrients. And we see that even for outside of omega-3. When we put people at MCI into lifestyle intervention, we consistently see change. We consistently see improvement. Sure. Um, so those are the people that, uh, and that's a lot of people, people 50 and above, 45 and above, who are starting to experience cognitive problems. I think um, those are, the, and, and and of course, definitely if they have family history or, or APOE4, right. they would benefit from this.
2: And also individuals who uh, were, sorry, uh, individuals who are APOE4 positive tend to see, uh, do much better than those who were not APOE4 Correct. positive again pointing to a potential mechanism of abnormal lipid transfer or lipid metabolism per se.
1: I've asked you this before, but and you've mentioned APOE4 a few times now and it sounds like it's it's it could potentially be an important thing for people to know, but there are obviously, you know, potentially some limitations of knowing where your what your genetic profile is. Um, is that something that you recommend, or do you, again, as Dean sort of said earlier, do you just assume that you you have genes that are predispose you to Alzheimer's? Uh,
0: so my take on this, and I yeah, will sure. let you. Um, I think you have you have the same or maybe different. So. Um, w- w- my take is this. I mean, I have two grandparents that have Alzheimer's and I, I'm, I'm a forgetful person because I'm so busy. At least that's what I'm telling myself, right? I'm, I'm an optimist, so I'm saying that I forget things because I'm busy.
1: I saw you post something on that, right? That's, that's, that's a normal part of the brain, like making space Correct. To, to hold new that's information. Right. Exactly, exactly,
2: The absent-minded professor sort of a thing, yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> but,
0: but let's say that I know that I have an APOE4 and tomorrow I lose my key. Guess what I'm going to ascribe it to next? The moment I know I have an APOE4 gene and I forget something, it's going to start that anxiety cascade. Oh, this is Alzheimer's. This is the beginnings of Alzheimer's. and And we know that anxiety and stress can significantly affect risk. So I think people should just assume they have risk and live with the lifestyle that's going to benefit them. Right. Um, Even omega-3, as you said, talk about supplementation. But as as one thing that I want to kind of speak about here, omega-3 is important, but there's so much more. We we talked about the washout effect in kids. True. When they get older, there was a washout effect because lifestyle and their environment was that much more influential than even omega-3. So it's not just omega-3 that you have to worry about. Get up and walk.
1: Let's go through that. Yeah. Yeah, let's go through that. So let's let's continue with the nutrition side of things and then let's move into the broader lifestyle. And some of this will be a, a recap, but I think this is this is the really empowering information. It's empowering to to know rather than just each little specific thing and drilling in on omega-3s, what's the big picture look like? How can we actually just take control of our health and you know, regardless of whatever genes we've been dealt? reduce our risk of, of either getting dementia, Alzheimer's dementia, or cognitive impairment, or at least delaying it so we have a higher quality of life for longer. Firstly, in terms of food, what are the sort of evidence-based non-negotiables in terms of foods or, or food groups that people should be you know subject to their food access? Really trying to make a concerted effort to work into their diet and their family's diet.
2: Everything you've been posting about and you've been seeing all these years, um, and you know it's it's not one vegetable, not one fruit, not one seed, but it's a variety of a plant predominant, I should say, plant based plant predominant diet is incredibly important because you know, we we spent a lot of time talking just about omega-3 fatty acids today, but we know that these nutrients work in synergy. If your vitamin B12 level is not addressed, if your zinc level is not addressed, if your selenium is not addressed, for example, or, or, or just, you know, the amount of fiber that you consume, if it's not addressed, then you're probably not going to benefit from it at all. So a very comprehensive, a plant-based diet seems to be the best diet. Of course, we Dean and I try our best not to be reductionists, but there are certain food groups that are over and over identified as potential harmful um, foods. So for example, when it comes to fats, not all fats are bad. There's specific types like saturated fats and trans fatty acids can cause a lot of damage not just necessarily to the brain cells and the brain connections, but it causes damage to the arteries that supply oxygen and nutrition to the different specialized parts of the brain. Um, a processed carbohydrates or refined carbohydrates, they put a lot of damage to the brain, and um, it can cause abnormalities and glucose dysregulation. So just kind of going over those four processes, inflammation, oxidation, uh, energy imbalance or energy dysregulation and lipid dysregulation; those are the four processes that can cause damage to the and, brain.
0: And on the good side, a little bit marketing thing, we came up with Neuro Nine. It's not even <laughs> neuro marketing. Uh, again, please don't take it. Uh, it's more about food than individual things. But nine things that they should have on a daily basis, uh, just to make sure that they're getting all the, you know, anti-inflammatory. And uh, we use actually the anti-inflammatory index. Um, but nonetheless, it's plants, plants, plants. And it, it's laughable to us when people talk about the you know lower levels of uh, B12 or, or omega in plant-based diet. The amount of good you do by avoiding saturated fats and, and, and some of the other things is just profoundly important. Right. And we see the results. We saw it in the Adventist Health Study and California Teacher Study. Aisha published one of the largest studies in the country, 133,000 people. And in many other studies, that a plant-predominant diet is incredibly healthy for body, but especially brain. Why brain? Brain, your three-pound organ, 2% of body's weight, is the most active organ in the body. It consumes up to 25% of body's energy. So you want to give the brain optimal foods. We say every meal you eat can either heal or harm the brain, just knowing that fact. Every meal that you eat can either heal or harm the brain.
1: I think it, it's interesting, the, the science around the mind diet. And you've read this section of my book on, on brain health and, and very kindly contributed enormously to the editing process. So thank you for that. What I really found interesting was that, of course, the Mediterranean diet has been very well studied you know, in terms of, well, relatively speaking, let's say, you know, in a space where there's not a whole lot of clinical trial data looking at different dietary patterns over a very long period of time, the Mediterranean diet has, you know, a reasonable amount of, of, of data. What I what I found interesting was the the MIND diet, which creates even more emphasis on whole plant foods, even less emphasis on, on foods like fish, has been associated with a, a much greater reduction in risk of dementia than the mediterranean diet and it's going to be really interesting over the next you know 5 10 15 20 years as you know there's more funding in this space and we get you know greater long term trials what what the results are that we can uh, use to 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 further help educate people about the power of all of these plant foods for their brain health
0: and and no, the mind diet and in spite of what we think is somewhat um, not the optimal diet because they have chicken there as an incidental measurement, and yet it, it's been shown to reduce Alzheimer's risk by fifty three percent.
1: It's crazy, yeah.
0: That's that's amazing, yeah. Uh, yeah. And 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 all the benefits
1: are from the plant based component.
2: That's correct. Yes,
1: I, I read Martha Morris's book on on the Mind Diet, and she she specifically states in there that that. Uh, poultry or, or chicken was included not because it's beneficial to the brain, but but because it's better than red meat. So I, I mean it, was, it it's pretty clear in there what you know why that was included. and and I think part of the the mind diet was the creation was around what did the researchers think was possible for people for for a big group of people, not necessarily what's the most optimal um, pattern. But I think it was you know interesting nonetheless. The neuro nine, I know we, you know, Aisha's just very clearly explained it's about more of these food groups, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts and seeds. But if if there were any sort of superstars or, or specific sort of hero type foods within that dietary pattern, are there any that, that you would like to see people focus on?
2: Yes, so uh, Dean and I explored... Um, well, one of my projects was... Um, to look at anti-inflammatory indices of food. So anti-inflammatory index is a list of food that was created a few years ago, and it's been used to look at um, the different patterns of dietary patterns and where the the foods that were mentioned in a dietary patterns fell in the anti-inflammatory food index. And so it's a very long list of foods. And we essentially looked at the Mediterranean diet and the MIND diet and looked at where they were represented in this anti-inflammatory index. And so based on that, we came up with the top nine uh, food items. Again, you know, not to sound too gimmicky because that's, that's something that we always want to stay away from, but I think it's good to have a list of foods that you are aware of that you have to consume every single day because they're just... Amazing. So let's see if my brain will help me remember these neuronines. So of course, on the top, we have our dark leafy green vegetables for obvious reasons. Incredible amount of um, polyphenols and anti-inflammatories and vitamins and minerals. We're talking about things like kale and spinach and arugula. Then we have beans or lentils, which are wonderful sources of fiber, as well as plant-based proteins, minus the saturated fats and all the other nasty stuff that meat has. Then we have berries. And as you know, berries are one of the few foods that actually have been tested in large population studies in the Nurses' Health Study. No, I'm sorry, the Women's Health Initiative where women who consumed half a cup of berries actually had lower rates of cognitive decline. And that can be blueberries or blackberries, but anything that has darker color is great. And then we have nuts. <laughs> Walnuts or pecans. Then we have seeds like chia seeds and flax seeds. Oh, goodness. Um, then we have herbs. Herbs like... Um, uh, oregano and um, uh, different kinds of uh, green very aromatic basil uh, yes basil rosemary cilantro parsley and spices come in that category too so turmeric and oregano and saffron Christopher's vegetables like broccoli cauliflower whole grains like oats brown rice um, uh, anything that has a lot of fiber in them and I think the last one was tea so anything like green tea or black tea um, are, that have been studied uh, in larger populations. So these are the neuronites Did I miss anything? It no, would be embarrassing I, if I I missed was stuck something. after the
0: first two. <laughs> yeah, so so you did, you did great. It's
2: not you good did, for my yeah. no, for my business. But yes, those uh, are the neuronides. Uh,
0: uh, uh Turmeric. We just were part of a paper that was just published from Cedar Sinai. We, we were the PIs. But when we when you leave a university, you, you lose your first. Author status, so, so we are in the middle. But uh, turmeric is amazing because yes. um, it actually—not turmeric, but um, uh, curcumin—actually binds to amyloid, which is the bad protein that accumulates in Alzheimer's. And we we were able to see that through this special device that looks that looked at uh, retina, and we 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 identified the uh, the amyloid. And then when you gave them curcumin, it actually saw it binding. And affecting the curcumin, so just
2: incredible, you know. It's just this, this wonderful spice can do so much.
1: Well, that tells me there might be a very low incidence of of dementia around Bondi, because <laughs> the the turmeric latte is definitely trending.
2: That's probably <laughs> what it is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Neuro Nine. Uh, maybe this is probably a nice way to finish. That's so. That's. That's featured within your new book, right? The 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution. Nice job, yes. Aish. You really set that Did up I? well. No, no thanks,
2: to, thanks to Simon for doing that. No, thank you, Simon. That's very kind of you. Um, yes, we are very excited because our second book, The 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution, is coming out soon on March 23rd. And this is based on our research on... Um, our lifestyle program. And it's a continuation of the first book, but it is more on the how. And I am so excited because it has a lot of recipes. We have over 75 recipes. And I think it's our gift to people because we. the one question that we've been getting over and over again since we wrote our first book is, how do I do it? And I think it, it just lines out a beautiful lifestyle program um, for better brain health. And not just necessarily for Alzheimer's prevention I know the title is Alzheimer's solution but you know anyone who's concerned about their mind health and brain health anyone who wants to have better focus and attention uh, I think it's for them
0: one of the things uh, this is a bit gimmick but but I think it's helpful to help promote uh, you know early sign up of the book people who pre-order we have a one month program that on the April 1st it will start whoever's bought the book for one month in a specific group on Facebook, we're actually going to take people through that book and through the lifestyle. We'll have lectures, uh, we have videos on on lifestyle and all of that is free um, uh, and we'll have recipes and downloadables and and some professors uh, on sleep from Harvard and uh, others from uh, uh, on stress a professor from Oxford and others that will be involved in this uh, one month program so people who get the book, We'll be putting them into the study and for a population, we'll actually study their cognitive status beforehand and after the month to kind of give them a sense of where they are. And it's of course, we're the one month is not enough. It's 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 a lifetime thing. Right. But it's a good habit building process that we want to start people on.
1: That's incredible. I think it's important to have that community aspect as well when when making big lifestyle changes which is what we're talking about here and being able to ask questions and engage with with like-minded people that are going through this the same thing be it you know other family members and friends that you can get involved and 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 share the experience with or you know it may be people through the internet
2: absolutely we're so excited
1: about that all right well come back and speak to me uh when the book's out and we can, we can do a bit of a deep dive into that, but I'll, uh, I'll be sure to put a, a, a link to the book so that anyone listening who wants to, to, to pre-order it and get involved in what Dean just described, uh, you can do so. Thank you
2: Thank so Thank you much, so Aaron. much. That's very kind of you.
1: Thank you guys. Pleasure as always. And I look forward to doing this again soon.
2: Oh, I can't wait. Thank you so much for having us.
1: All right, my friends, there we go. What did I say about nuance and being prepared to acknowledge where things are a little gray? I think it's incredibly important to be able to accept that there are some holes in nutrition science, and rather than feeling uncomfortable about them, accepting them and getting comfortable making the most evidence based decisions we can. As I said in this episode, In this instance, I feel for me personally, taking 840 milligrams of DHA and EPA a day, which is equivalent to around three pieces of salmon a week, is a good insurance policy. If you eat seafood, you may not want to do that. If you have no heart disease or Alzheimer's in your family and and think consuming plant-based omega-3s from walnuts, flax, et cetera, has you covered, then that might be the path you go down until we know more. No matter which option you do go down, I do think it's important to consider ultra-processed junk food. The more of this food that we eat, the more omega-6s we tend to get in our diet, which competes for the enzyme that converts ALA into the biologically active long-chain omega-3s, EPA and DHA. By keeping tabs on the ultra-processed foods we eat, we can better convert the omega-3s in foods like walnuts, chia, and flax into DHA and EPA. I'll leave you with that. That's all for this episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, please connect with The Shares Eyes and I on the socials. Instagram is probably the best place to interact with both of us. Their username is at shersimd and mine is at plant underscore proof. Finally, if you are a long-time listener or perhaps a very enthusiastic first-time listener and you're not bored of my voice and have gotten some form of value out of the show, please jump over to the Apple Podcast app and leave a review. I realized the other day I was asking for reviews at the end of all of my episodes and I kept saying it was to help the show become more discoverable. It's actually not why I asked for them. I just like reading them. It's nice to see people appreciate the conversations. So kind of selfish of me, but hey, I'd love to read a review from you. All right, until next time, my friends, thanks for hanging out with me again. And I look forward to seeing you in episode 118, Don't Stand Me Up.